Welcome to the Retirement Made Easy podcast. I'm your host, Greg Gonzalez. My goal for the podcast is to help you live a better life in retirement by giving you the tools and information you need in a language that you can understand. This is episode number 94. I never thought I would get this far. My goal was always to get to the two-year mark, which when you do a weekly podcast over two years, it's 52 weeks in a year, so that's 104 episodes. That was always kind of my goal, if I could just get to that 104. So this is episode number 94. I feel like I'm almost there. And I wanted to thank all of our listeners of the Retirement Made Easy podcast. Your questions have inspired me, and tracking the downloads and the listener participation has just really humbled me. And I just wanted to say thank you for all the people that have reached out. Like I said, the number of new listeners that has been attracted to this podcast over the past six months, the past three months, it's doubled and doubled again. And with that, I have a lot of people going to my website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. And at the bottom, they're submitting their questions. And we're going to talk about a handful of questions today that listeners have submitted that I just can't answer. That doesn't make them bad questions. I just can't answer them. And we're going to talk about why I can't answer them. They're fantastic questions, and I wanted to address them because each of these was submitted by a listener of this podcast, and we really, really enjoy hearing from our listeners from those questions that they submit. And then lastly, I wanted to also thank the listeners who were kind of at that pivotal stage in life, the doorstep of retirement, and they just happen to be shopping for a financial advisor and happen to hear our podcast. So thank you for those folks that that have reached out and we've had phone calls and Zoom sessions to talk about your retirement, your hopes, your dreams, the resources you have, and if it's even a good fit at all to work together. I will be first to admit that I don't work well with everybody. To give you an example, I had a, an office meeting actually a few years ago, I'll never forget, and it was a couple that was going to retire in six months, and the wife had forgot to bring her social security statement to the meeting, and her husband proceeded to scold and berate this woman right in front of my very eyes. He started cussing up a storm just because she forgot her social security statement. She forgot to bring it to the meeting, which wasn't the end of the world. But I kind of remained calm and helped give them some fantastic advice and information. But I did tell them, you know, I don't think this is going to be a good fit. And I was thinking afterwards, man, if that guy, if the husband of that couple thinks it's okay to talk to his wife like that, how does he think it's okay to talk to other people? And I didn't want to ever have that guy talk to me like that. So again, I am happy to help any way I can. Some people I'm going to be a better fit to work with than others. You just kind of have to see. And what some people find interesting is when I started my business, I went out on my own, started my business years ago, I made it a promise to myself that I would only work with nice people. So all the clients that I do work with, yeah, they're in 20 different states. The majority are in Missouri and Illinois but states from across the country, which is really, really neat. But they're all nice people. And I wonder how many businesses can really say that their clients or customers are all very, very nice people, people that you would want to go to church with or go out to eat with. All right, let's switch gears. I wanted to remind uh, listeners, check out our website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. 
There's a ton of resources in the resources tab that you can download for free. My retirement secret sauce, my tax planning guide, my blueprint to a dream retirement. It's all there. Check it out, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. And if you have questions, you can submit them there at the bottom of the website. So let's jump into these questions that listeners have submitted that I just can't answer. And while they're all related to retirement, they're vastly different. So I had one question from Jerry, and Jerry was talking about a very, very long emailed question, which is fine. So I'm going to kind of paraphrase if I can. And Jerry's question really revolves around the price of gas. Jerry, he didn't say where he's from. I get questions from across the country. So there's really no telling. But he said where he is, the price of gas will be $5 before long. Here in in Missouri, it's like $3.85 right now. In Illinois, it's four and a quarter. Fun fact, Missouri has some of the most affordable or cheapest gas in the entire country. There's kind of like a line right down the Midwest, like Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, I think it's Kansas or Nebraska, that they have very, very affordable gas. I had a client out in California send me a picture, actually emailed me a picture where the price per gallon was like over $6 a gallon. I think it was like six and a quarter or six fifty or something like that. Something outrageous. But getting back, Jerry's question said before long, he expects the price of a barrel of oil to be over $200 a barrel. And his question is, do you recommend shifting part of my portfolio to energy stocks and mutual funds to take advantage of this opportunity? Why or why not? So Jerry, it's a fantastic question. And this is one, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to answer because I don't know enough about Jerry's situation here. He mentions taking a portion of his portfolio and investing it in energy mutual funds and energy stocks. Well, when someone says, I'm going to eat a portion of the cake, I mean, it could be half of the cake or a pie, right? So portion control is very, very important when it comes to putting together a portfolio. And and what's a small portion to somebody may be a large portion to somebody else. So when he's talking about investing a portion, I don't know whether he's talking about investing like half of his portfolio or just like 5% of his portfolio in the energy sector. So energy sector, just think of the oil companies like maybe Marathon and BP Oil. Maybe it's Halliburton, Chevron, or ExxonMobil. Those are all big, just examples of big energy players in that field. The other thing I don't know about Jerry is I don't know what his risk tolerance is. And I don't know what the overall goal here is. Is is the goal, okay, we're going to speculate that the price of oil is going to go up and essentially double from $100 a barrel to $200 a barrel, well, that's speculation. And a lot of times, speculations don't work out. And we've got to remember, speculating is not investing. It's almost short-term gambling or taking a bet on something. So, Jerry, again, I don't know your risk tolerance. I don't know what a portion means to you. And personally, with my clients, I just don't like speculating on things that might happen. I like to put a portfolio together and design a portfolio based on someone's unique situation and what they're trying to accomplish. 
right? And how much risk they really are comfortable taking. You have to kind of take a step back and ask yourself, how is my portfolio set up and designed to help me get closer to my retirement goals? And if you can't answer that, well, you need to take a step back and maybe rethink things. This whole speculation reminds me of a story back in 2009, someone that was referred to me, and this is the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. You probably remember GM actually went bankrupt. And the auto industry was just a wreck at that point. Not only Ford, but GM as well. And the price of Ford stock and GM stock was just tanking. And I'm not a big proponent of individual stocks to begin with. Many people know that I'm a Dave Ramsey SmartVestor Pro, and that's just not something Dave Ramsey happens to advocate for, right? Is owning single individual stocks that take way too much risk in a portfolio. If you're going to own them, just make sure they're a smaller sliver of the overall portfolio. But getting back to this story, I had somebody that called me up, said, hey, my sister is a client of yours. I want to come in and talk to you because I have so many financial questions at this point. The market in 2008, 2009 was tanking. They wanted to talk. Great. Come on in. He wanted to take half of his portfolio and invest it in GM stock. He wanted to take the other half of his portfolio and invest it in Ford. Now, this is his entire life savings, 40 years of work, and he wanted to put it on red and black. And I told him, I'm not the advisor for you. I'm not going to be able to do this. I just don't believe that it's going to be a successful outcome. I don't have the confidence that you're going to be happy with the end result. Now, it turned out GM actually went bankrupt. The stock went to zero. So he lost everything with half of his portfolio. But fortunately for him, and I said a prayer or two for him, the price of the Ford stock did rebound and he was able to make it up on the other end. But again, his GM stock, he lost every penny. 50% of his portfolio was gone within a matter of months. Now, this guy was, I think he was 58 or 59 years old. He'd been working 40 years, you know, since he was 18 or 19, never went to college. And he was willing to put it all on the line on Ford and GM, and it just blew me away. That's not something I would ever, ever recommend for somebody. It's way, way too much risk. But again, it was his decisions were based on speculation that, okay, this is as low as GM and Ford can go. I'm speculating that they'll recover from here. And fortunately for him, he was half right. All right, the next question that I wanted to jump into comes from Dean. Dean's question is quite lengthy as well. So I'm going to, again, paraphrase here. Dean is actually from Indiana. Okay. So a couple states over from me in Missouri. And Dean is basically 63 years old. His wife is 10 years younger, still working. So that puts her at 53. He's 63. He's going to be retiring in December of 2022. His questions, so he has bullet points. When should he claim his social security? Which choice makes the most sense for his pension election? And last question, should he pay off his house before he retires at the end of the year if he has the cash sitting around? This is another one of those questions I just can't answer. I'm not trying to dodge Dean's question by any means, but the key here to me is I don't have enough information on Dean's wife. Dean forgot to mention a lot of information about his wife that is very, very crucial to these decisions for him. When I look at a husband and a wife, they are a team. 
They are lifelong partners and they are in this together. So we have to make decisions to benefit their retirement, not Dean's retirement. So we need to figure out, okay, your pension options, Dean, that you have, you mentioned your wife, for example, is 10 years younger. If Dean also told me that his wife has longevity in her family and really, really good genes, I mean, think about this. She's not only 10 years younger than Dean, but if she also told me that her mom is still alive in her late 80s, her great-grandmother made it to 103, Dean, think about this. When it comes to your pension, you almost have to take that 100% joint and survivor option because that pension could quite possibly be paying out for 50 years if your wife made 103 like her grandmother did. Dean did not provide the lump sum details if they even exist. Some pensions don't offer a lump sum, some do. But I think what's so key here is that a couple needs to make decisions together based on their own information. So, for example, we don't have any information on Dean's wife's social security. We don't know if she has a pension coming at some point in the future. We don't know if there's life insurance on Dean. All of these different factors are what they need to be discussing with a fiduciary advisor who is going to take all these different factors into account to help them make the best decisions of when and how to claim Dean's pension and social security benefit and Dean's wife's pension and possible social security benefit if they exist. The decisions absolutely have to be coordinated based on the information that we have. The last question that Dean asked was about his mortgage and should he pay off his house before he retires at the end of the year? He said he does have the cash available. That's something, again, I mean, if you paid off your house, would you have $500 in your emergency fund? That's something that Dean did not specify. But generally speaking, if I could kind of generalize here, I like to see people going into retirement with a paid off house and no mortgage. Sometimes when we're doing our retirement planning for folks, we will try to coordinate when they retire with when the house will be paid off. There are so many advantages to being retired debt-free. You don't have those monthly payments going to some bank somewhere, right? You can live on less money or you can spend the money not spending it for some payment, mortgage payment or car payment or something like that. You can spend it on things that you actually enjoy that will enhance your life in your enjoyment in retirement. Because say what you want, that mortgage payment, that doesn't really enhance your lifestyle in retirement. I guess you could make an argument there, but vacations and going to see your family, kids, grandkids, brothers, sisters, that kind of stuff, that's what's really going to enhance your enjoyment in retirement. It's not paying for some car loan or some mortgage payment, believe me. So getting back to Dean's questions, the missing pieces here is all the information about Dean's wife. And that's what's preventing us from kind of helping Dean answer all those questions. I'm just kind of imagining this 63 and 53-year-old couple, maybe when Dean retires at the end of the year, maybe he's 63 and a half, he can jump on Cobra, or probably the more likely scenario is Dean's wife has health insurance through her employer, and she can cover Dean until he turns 65 and can jump on Medicare. I can sit here and make all these assumptions about Dean and his wife, but but we really, really need more information on her because we want to be able to help Dean answer the questions that he has about retirement that will maximize their retirement 
not his retirement. It's a joint retirement. She's going to retire someday too. Now, as I sit here, I wanted to bring up something that it's not addressed in Dean's question. It's not about Dean and his wife. But in his question, he had mentioned that his wife, there was a 10-year age difference. He was 63 and she was 53. And whenever there's an age difference like this, there's other challenges. There's specific planning that needs to be done to make sure that one spouse is protected in case something ever happened to the older spouse. And that's something that you can plan ahead. Trust me, your strategy might look a lot different with that 10-year age gap between spouses versus if they were both the same age. I had a scenario where somebody had booked a Zoom call with us and the older spouse had taken the single life pension option, which is the highest possible pension option for the rest of his life. But with that, if something happens to him, there's nothing left over for his spouse. And she was over 10 years younger. So that was a gap in their overall plan. And that's the kind of gap that I'm talking about that you really, really need to fill and you need to address. And we got one more question this week. We got a question from Jean and Jean asked, and I'm going to kind of really, really paraphrase here because her story is very, it's sad. It's actually making me sad as I look at it, Jean. But essentially there were some big, sad changes in her life and her family, and she's wanting to kind of change her beneficiary plans to make sure everything goes to her son. And Jean goes on to say that she's uh, put his name on her house, put his name on all bank accounts, like checking accounts, savings accounts, all that kind of stuff. And she has changed her will to name him as the sole beneficiary of everything. This decision is keeping her up at night, and she's wondering if she's really doing the right thing here. And Unfortunately, Gene, without knowing your son, your entire situation, I can't tell you whether this is the right thing to do. However, I'll kind of speak generally to the situation and what you're trying to accomplish here. So if you put your son as joint owner on all your bank accounts, on your home, maybe even on your vehicles if you own any, imagine it's just like gifting half of the asset, whether it's your home, checking account, whatever, to your son. And if you, now your son is listed on your checking account, guess what? Half of the account is really legally his, and he can write checks. He could spend through that if he was a rotten person. It sounds like he's a fantastic son, but there is that risk there. Whenever you name somebody as joint owner of an account, maybe it's a brokerage account or checking, savings, that kind of thing, they have access to it. They can do bad things if they wanted to be a bad person. Not to say they would ever do that. It's just a risk that we have to point out. The other thing, you said you updated your will to make him the sole beneficiary. I would also review your financial power of attorney, your healthcare directive or healthcare power of attorney to make sure he's named there as well. Or maybe you want to name somebody else. That's totally up to you. The other thing that you did not name is... As far as like IRAs, 401ks, retirement accounts, you want to make sure you have named your son the primary beneficiary on those. Because if you've still got somebody else named on IRAs, 401ks, whatever it may be, maybe it's, let's just assume it's your sister, and you wanted it to go in your will, everything to go to your son, heaven forbid something happened to you, whoever you have named as the beneficiary on that IRA, 401k, Roth IRA, that's who gets the money no matter what's in your will. So I would have you definitely, Gene, check up. If you have retirement accounts, make sure that the beneficiaries are everything going to your son. The other thing I want to caution you on, Gene, is 
by naming your son as joint owner of these accounts, the house, these assets, right? We talked about the risk of him having access to them, but we didn't talk about the liability, not only from creditors. If let's say your uh, creditors came after your son, he owed a bunch of money. Well, guess what? He's got all these assets now, half of the house, the bank accounts, brokerage account, let's say that really is owned by him. So they can come after that money in those assets. The other thing is, let's think a worst case scenario, your son got into a automobile accident and creditors and, and people came and sued him. Well, guess what? We live in a litigious society. Well, they're going to look at all of his assets and his names on all those accounts that you put him on. Those are assets that are subject to be liable in that lawsuit. Again, not saying it would ever happen. It just happens to be a risk that you need to be aware of by naming him as joint owner. So Gene, to kind of wrap up here, I don't know if you're doing the right thing here, but hopefully I gave you some more things to think about. Maybe you go and, and probably I would suggest meeting with a, an estate planner that you like and you trust that can help guide you as you make these decisions in such a sad time in your life. I really sincerely hope the best for you. And if you have any follow-up questions, go to my website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com, and you can submit your questions there, Gene. And again, we hope the best for you. I hope this episode of the Retirement Made Easy podcast has been helpful. There's questions I cannot answer. You heard a few of them today. I don't have enough information to answer these questions. They're all fantastic questions, but without a full background, a full picture of what's going on in your life. Sometimes I can't answer some of these questions. So thanks for listening this week. And remember, always dream big. The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, please consult your attorney, financial advisor, or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member of FINRA, SIPC. 